One objection. If you've not been with us for the uh, past few weeks, what we've been doing is we have been going out on the streets with some flyers asking people around Liverpool. If you've got one objection to Christianity and one objection to the church, what, what would that be? What is it? What is it? And we've been getting loads of different answers. There are a few of them up here. They're not the clearest, sorry. If you can just... I, um, I don't need God. You can't trust the Bible. Uh, there's not enough proof. What about all the suffering in the world? Christians have put me off. Just one religion can't be true. And as we've spoken to people, we've had a, we've had a great time, actually, just finding out what they, what they think about Christianity, what the key messages they're getting about Christianity are, and why many of them are, have objected. And I've had some brilliant personal conversations. And today, my job with you, like we're going to be doing over the next four weeks, is going to be to try and answer, try and to respond to some of the objections that people have raised about Christianity, to talk back to them about Okay, where there might be some merit or where we don't think that's a great objection. So today, the objection is, Christians have put me off. This is interestingly one of the major responses that we got as we went out speaking to people. I don't think it was just because it was me and Butters doing it on the street sometimes. I think it was more general than that. I don't think they were just looking at our faces thinking, no way, stay away from me. 20% of the answers that we actually drew back in fit this category. Christians have put me off Christianity. Quite an indictment. Uh, and when we were speaking to people about this objection, it probably it was probably for two reasons they lent into this objection. The first one was because of past things done in the name of Christianity, like the Crusades, or as Chris Butland talked about last week, one guy he spoke about said, look, I, I really don't like Christianity because of its involvement in the slave trade at the time. So it's either about past actions done, or it was about... Because they saw Christians as holding closed-minded, narrow-minded, bigoted views, dated, prejudiced views, particularly around issues of same-sex relationships and abortions, etc. Because of these two reasons, they said, Christians, you've, you've put me off even looking any further into Christianity. I mean, one lovely lady I met on this last one really summed up this kind of idea of narrow-minded bigotry when she said, how can Christians love their neighbour, yet place so many judgments and restrictions on those who live differently? It just doesn't add up. Really challenging. If this is an objection that you have to Christianity, or the major objections, you're in good company today. Actually, this was one of the key reasons that Gandhi rejected Christianity. When after exploring the Bible, he entered a church in South Africa and as a young lawyer from India, and was told that he couldn't sit with the white congregation because of his skin colour, he was told he wasn't welcome. And as a result of this experience, he concluded, as he turned his back on Christianity, this. I love your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Or more recently, and perhaps less famously to you, there's a Scottish band called Frightened Rabbit that I really like. It's a bad name, I know, but they do make good music. They're, honestly, a lot of good music coming out of Scotland. But they wrote about being put off by, of Christianity by the thought of this. Spending an eternity of suffering with all those Christian men. It's a poignant lyric, isn't it? The band looked at their encounters with some of the church members they had met in Scotland and they concluded that spending an eternity with those fellas did not like, look like heaven at all. It looked like suffering because they were so miserable, so judgmental and so objectionable. 
Do you know, to be honest, I'm just straight up here. Honestly, sometimes I feel the same way. I look at things done by Christians in the name of Christianities that I just don't want to be associated with. They make me want to hide my Christian badge a little bit or just stay quiet about my belief in Jesus. I don't, I, yeah, I kind of believe. Shh. Do you know, I think about some of the ways that Christianity and imperialism and history were outwork. And I think, I don't want to be associated with that. And I've heard things said through my years of being a Christian, like people calling lower income households. I remember this so clearly. I sat with a group of Christians all around me and they just started talking about lower income people as being sponging chavs. Or I've heard other people call certain segments of society just disgusting people. And I think, no, these things are not my views. They're not my views. They're not, they're not a part of me. Don't associate me with that. Don't mucky and sully me with that. And I recoil. Do you know, I've been a Christian since I was 17. And sometimes I think, wow, if I could have chosen my church family differently, I would have chosen my church family differently. There are people who I love dearly who hold more of my cultural perspectives, who I'm probably more comfortable with in my own skin, who are not Christians. Who I long to be Christians. And others who I kind of feel like they're band frightened rabbit with. If I have to spend eternity with that guy, it's going to be a really hard graft. We're going to have to have some pearly gate words before we go in to make sure this is okay for the rest of time together. Do you know, and I know, and I know as well, that one of the primary reasons that Christians give up on faith, sadly, is either that they feel that they just fit in with other Christians, or that other Christians have let them down or hurt them in some way. It's just a reality in church life. You spend enough time in a church, that will be some people's story back to you. So if this is your objection, you're in good company. You're in good company. But I want you to tell you today, if if Christians have put me off as your main objections to Christianity, it is not, nor has it ever been, a good foundation for accepting or rejecting the Christian faith as being true or false. It's just not a good reason for that, nor is it a good reason for leaving the church behind you if you are a Christian. It is probably, in fact, I want to say to you, the weakest objection out of all of those, the weakest foundation for an objection of Christianity out of all of those that we are going to look at over the next four weeks. And I want to give you three reasons today why that's the case. Firstly, it's just poor thinking. It is just poor thinking. Let me explain this. Gandhi's statement, although it is a powerful challenge to Christianity to always in every circumstances look more like Jesus, it is almost as narrow-minded as the people he is criticizing. I love your Christians, but do not I love your Christ, but do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Now I don't know if this is representative of his views throughout his life. And in some ways he's an absolute hero of mine. But in this statement, Gandhi is guilty of poor thinking. He's guilty of stereotyping here, forming a narrow opinion of the many based on one bad experience of church in one historical context. You see, I wonder if he would have written this statement had he met someone like Martin Luther King Jr. Or those like Ralph Abernathy who stood and worked with him as they fought for equal rights for black people in America. These people, although not perfect like Christ, forced injustice like Christ, 
were imprisoned like Christ, faced abuse and threat of death throughout their lives like Christ, but never sought violence like Christ, instead repaid hatred with love like Christ, and in the case of Martin Luther King, was eventually murdered for his mission of setting the captive free like Christ. You see, the truth is that there are always, in any point of history of the church, Christians who look like Christ, Christians who are a good example of Christ, and Christians who don't, who aren't a good representation of Christ, who are a warped or poor representation of Christianity, good examples and bad examples. For every Christian supporter of slavery in the past, there is a William Wilberforce who, because of the amazing grace he received, began to fight for the abolition of slavery. For every imperialist looking to impose British rule on other nations, there was a Hudson Taylor who rejected the British way of life and took on the Chinese way of life, that he might take the truth of the gospel to people. Jesus told us to expect as much in the life of the church with a farming analogy, saying, look, there will be good wheat that is good for eating as the church grows up, but there'll also be some chaff, some chaff which just needs to be thrown away. And you will see both, he says, as the church grows. But you know, even outside these big dramatic examples, if I can make this point another way. Now, I'm a signed up, died in the wall believer, follower of Christ. I buy into it. And my hope and my aim as I meet people in life would be that they see some of the rich effect he has had on my life and want to know that for themselves. Deep desire of mine. But the reality is I have some truly bad days as a Christian. And I've done some truly rubbish things since I've been a Christian. I've been judgmental. I've made decisions that have upset people. Some of these things have been through just sheer lack of wisdom on my part. Some through ignorance. Some through unaddressed selfishness and ambition. And as I've reflected on these instances, my main fear has been that my example, my poor Christian witness in different situations, will have put people off. But the truth of the matter is, it would be wrong just because people have known me in my poor moments to conclude that all Christianity is wrong and that all Christian are hypocrites. Just because Matt was a jerk that day, all that my behaviour means in those moments is this, that I was a jerk that day, that I am fallible, and I might get good at saying sorry and asking for forgiveness from others, something that my wife teaches me daily. But that's all. Do you get my point, my first point this morning? If you've raised this objection to Christianity, I'm sure you already agree that stereotyping is not good thinking. It takes a small experience, a newspaper article, an encounter with a Christian on a bad day, looking at one event, an experience of church community that is never negative, one particular bad example in history, and typecasts all people as this experience. This is distorting and unreasonable. Without knowing all Christians in all contexts at all times, we cannot make statements about what all Christians are or not. This is not our gift. And for this reason, this is my first reason that this is not a good foundation for accepting or rejecting the truth of Christianity. To stick to it, you have to have done some stereotyping, ignored the wheat, and just focused on the chaff. 
And that is poor thinking. Reason one. Secondly, secondly, it's this. In Christianity, should have objectionable people. You should expect to find some objectionable people as you enter the Christian community. I want to explain this to you. If you look at Jesus chose as his followers, they weren't all really nice people from nice backgrounds. They were actually from a real mess of backgrounds. Some of them were com- common uneducated fishermen. Some were violent nationalists. Some were wealthy tax collectors who exploited their own people for gain. And some were religious, judgmental zealots. And his two main leaders he chose, Peter was an impulsive wimp, and Paul was a murderer. In Jesus' lifetime, he was criticised that those following him, whom he was spending time with and eating with, weren't good moral people. In other words, his followers were a bit off-putting because of who they were, because of their background, because of their belief, because of their behaviour. And Jesus' response to this criticism was this. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus says here that he came to build a community out of mucky, broken people. Not those from neat, tidy backgrounds who considered they had everything sewn up morally nailed and never caused offence. For Jesus, you've got to understand this about Christianity. There has never been a moral standard that you have to attain before you can become a Christian. There's no right background, there's no right upbringing, there's no right way of behaving that you need to have achieved to be one of his followers. His only prerequisite, the only thing he says, was that from whatever background you were from, you realised that you were a sinner. One who had fallen short of God's standard for your life when he created you. And that because of this, you recognised that you needed his unique help to fix this situation. This is the very central teaching of Christianity. If you can click on, this is captured in a letter to the Romans that Paul wrote, Romans 3, 23 to 25. For everyone has sinned, everyone, without exception. We all fall short of God's glorious standard for our lives. Yet God, in his grace, as a free gift, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through, the way he did this was through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood for us. The gospel is this. The whole world are like sheep who have gone astray. We've forgotten God. We've separated ourselves from our creator. And as a result of doing that, we have fallen Sure, we've fallen into sin. We've done wrong things. We're thinking wrong ways. We're in broken relationship. Yet God looked at us and he said, no, you're too precious. You're too precious for me to leave it that way. And so he sent his son, Jesus, to come down to earth, to live a perfect life with him and die a perfect death with him on your behalf so that where you now die as a result of your sins. So where you're now trapped as a result of your sins, he would take all of that punishment and impact for you on himself and in return give you a new life. Why? 
because he loves you. Just because he loves you. Not because you deserve it, not because you meet a moral standard, just because he loves you. And in fact, if you look at Jesus' teaching, the major problem for Jesus was never that people fell short of a moral standard. It was that some people never saw any issue or shortfall in their life because they're, in their own eyes, they had met or were better than the moral standard of their day because this meant that they never saw the need for the help he was putting on offer that he said everyone needed. So would never seek him out and would never find the truth. His major concern was in the same way if you don't recognise you have an issue with anger, if you don't recognise you have an issue with overeating, if you don't recognise you have an issue with depression, you don't seek out or accept help for that. If you don't recognise how far you have fallen from God's standard in your life, you will never seek out or accept his forgiveness. Christianity and the grace God offers at the cross has always been easier for those who know they fall short of the moral standard of the age. Because these people see that they can't, for whatever reason, attain that level, let alone God's level. Whereas those who fit and attain the moral standards of the day and judge others by it fail to see the much higher standard that God always made for us as creation and our serious need for his gracious help as a result of it. Very simply, what this means for today's objection is that when looking from the outside in to the Christian community, you should expect to find a whole raft of people with questionable moral starting points, working out their faith from what even society would say is a low moral standard. So I had a great uh, lesson of this in a previous job. I was working closely with a gangster from Newcastle. And in one session, he started talking freely about how he had uh, just accepted Jesus into his life and taken on his faith. He'd read a book called The Cross and the Switchblade, which is about uh, people coming to faith from gangland New York. And as he discussed how in reading this book, he had recognised his need for God's forgiveness and he had accepted grace and begun following Jesus, he talked about how something new had been hidden in his life. It was a new desire to do right. But at first, to be honest, in meeting this guy, I truly questioned the authenticity of his faith. Because he was so flippin' obnoxious. <laughs> he was cheating on his girlfriend. He was still regularly violent to other people and saw no problem with that whatsoever because he believed you had to be that way to survive. And he held some really racist opinions. And he saw nothing wrong with these because he had always lived that way. But over the next couple of years, I saw this man steadily changed. Things he had never thought as being wrong before became uncomfortable to him. He realised in a way that was totally new for him that having multiple relationships was harmful. And he and his ex-prostitute girlfriend became a married couple. He broke a man's jaw during the time I knew him and went back to prison. But for the first time, instead of blame and denial, he had shame. And he realised what he'd done to someone else. He wrote a letter to his victim to apologise and went through his prison sentence without any violence, which was amazing. By the time I had left him, he was helping coach a weekend football team. He'd humbled himself to the point where he was willing to accept the dole so he could teach his stepson that you didn't need to do crime in life. 
and he was helping make videos to turn others away from crime. Although he still had a thing for knock-off items that came round the van out to his front door. And he regularly cited his faith as the thing that had changed him. Do you know, if you'd met this man in the first year of being a Christian, he would have readily nicked your wallet as told you Jesus loved you. But from a baseline that what most of us would call deprived by any middle-class moral standard, I saw him change more than most of us do in a lifetime. What's the point of this? It's another reason it's not a good reason, good foundation for rejecting Christianity is because in large part, Christianity has always been for those people who put other people off. It's a religion based on intervention and help and grace. And a religion like this, this was always going to be the case. You know, and although Jesus definitely promises to come and change a person's life when they've truly become a Christian, bringing new fruit like peace, patience, kindness, forgiveness, just like I did in the example I've given. You know, the Christians you encounter could be at any point on a spectrum. They could still be on this side, just become a Christian, religious zealots, thinking nicking wallets is okay, violent. They could be here, in the middle. You know, they could be changed, but because of their upbringing, their culture that they've not shaken off yet, they still hold views that are objectionable. Or they could be here. They could be mature Christians who really do look like Christ. But I'll tell you what, even those, even those Christians are a work in progress. That's what the Bible tells us. The Bible says that becoming a Christian is like having a beautiful treasure hidden in a very unimpressive jar of clay. None of these jars are particularly good to look at, and some much less so than others. It doesn't stop the treasure being there. This is the second reason why meeting off-putting Christians is not a good foundation for rejecting the validity of Christianity. Finally, let's just look at this one last one. Listen, although I've said, undoubtedly I've encountered some closed-minded, bigoted voices in the church, as there are in any walk of life, truth be told is, Although I've met many Christians who disagree with various aspects of our culture, my experience of being a Christian for the past 19 years tells me that the reality is that narrow-minded bigots are actually few and far between. And most Christians very simply want to love the God that loved them first and love people as well as they can, in part by introducing him to this good God. But the reality is that when you have encountered the incomparable grace and goodness and holiness of the living God, known his forgiveness at the cross, recognised his living presence in your life by his Holy Spirit, your framework for what love and morality look like begin to change forever. Because suddenly you have a third point of reference on everything you do that you never had before. Where it was just you and society defining love and what was morally right before, suddenly you have a knowledge of a perfectly good, holy God in your life. In light of this, you can no longer deal with morality as relative, as something that all societies just make up as they go along. But you understand that the good God who made and forgave you has defined right and wrong ways to live for the first time. The implication of this is that whenever a new moral or ethical issue comes up in the life of society or social values shift, you want to look at what God said 
along with what society says and along with what your starting beliefs are and begin to work out your relationship in reference, we're willing to work out what you think in relationship and reference to him. That's been the way with the church since its conception, you know. In the book of Acts, you see the church expand from a Jewish culture. They then go into the Asian culture surrounding, which raises a whole raft of questions. How do we engage with this culture? They then go into Greek culture, and they raise another set of questions that they grapple with. They then go into Roman culture, which is the centre of the known world at the time, and they had to, again, ask, God, how should we engage with this culture? Do you know, and there are some very live discussions in the church at the moment that reflect this process, the three-way process. You know, I recently uh, read a book by David Bennett, a same-sex attracted man who became a Christian whilst he was a gay rights activist. And he's looking at the issue of gay marriage. This guy clearly absolutely loves God as he writes. And he absolutely loves the gay community as he writes. And throughout his book, he grapples with what God and the Bible truly have to say about same-sex marriage. And it is a fascinating discussion as you read it. Whereas he looks at this live issue, he firstly challenges where historically there has not been love of the LBTQ plus community from the church and society, but there has been oppression He then challenges how the whole of society, including the church, has made relationships of intimate sexual love their highest goal in life. In Bible language, their idol. And seen them as more important than God. Then he gives his own painful and joyful and sad account of how he settles on celibacy whilst acknowledging that not everyone rests in the same place as he does. It is an incredibly moving book that made me weep, both as he encountered God, but also as he sought to live that out and he looked back through history. Now, you or I may not conclude what he does, but he doesn't settle on this position because of narrow-mindedness. That would be a massive, massive injustice on him. I think he would introduce most of us to a broader mindset than most of society has ever had on this issue after reading his book. Instead, he settles on this position because he's encountered one even more precious to him than the idea of a fulfilling intimate relationship or just going in the flow of what is currently socially acceptable because his life has been so radically impacted by the love and goodness of God that there is now something he has encountered in his life that is more important to him and a higher point of reference than society or even his own desires has to bring on this social matter, even when this is personally painful and costly for him. Does this make life a little bit more complicated sometimes, to have this third point of reference? Yeah, it does. Does it mean sometimes Christians are catching up with good developments in society as they stop and check what God thinks? Yeah, it does. Does this mean that they will sometimes stand opposed to the conclusions of those who don't have this third point of reference and conclusion? Yeah, of course it does. Does it mean that if they don't share the moral views of society on a few or a raft of issues that they are narrow-minded, unthinking individuals? No, that's not a fair conclusion to make. Because you would expect those who have truly encountered something different, if that different thing is real and precious enough, to think differently at times. If they don't, they probably haven't encountered the pearl of preciousness to which everything else comes second. 
This is the third reason that the objection that Christians have put me off is not a good foundation for accepting or rejecting Christianity. Because the very reason they hold a view that is different to yours or live with a different set of priorities that a different society just may be that they have encountered something different. It may be a proof of something being real, worth taking notice of. Not that they're closed-minded. Does that last one make sense to you? Yeah? So here you have it. Those are my three reasons why this is a really bad reason to accept or reject Christianity. Bad foundation. It's just poor reasoning. If what Jesus offers is true, there should be some objectionable people in Christianity. What you find, and what you find objectionable, most likely is not because they are narrow-minded, but because they genuinely have a third point of reference in their life, which is incredibly precious to them, that they have to take account of. But if this is not a good foundation, I want to finish with this. What is a good foundation? What is a good foundation for rejecting or accepting the validity of Christianity? And there's one place I want to take you above all others, and that is to the resurrection just briefly this morning. Because out of all of the breadth of arguments for and against Christianity, this is the one that really matters more than any other. The Apostle Paul writes this about it in 1 Corinthians 15, 14 to 19. If Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. And we'll all be lying about God. For we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there is no resurrection of the dead. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope is in Christ, is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. It says this. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then everybody calling themselves a Christian is to be pitied because they've been totally misled. They're living in nonsense. That's what he's saying. Have you seen the movie 300, any of you? Yeah? Seen that movie? Uh, well, it involves lots of stacked men, basically. Testosterone-filled action and fighting. But the central theme of this movie is that they fight. They have to fight this vast army. And what they do is they draw them into this narrow channel between the sea and the rock to face them on ground where they can fight. And what Paul is saying here is that the resurrection is this narrow place for Christianity. If the resurrection of Jesus never happened, nothing in Christianity has, has or will ever teach will be of any worth. On the other hand, as if the Bible teaches that after dying on the cross, Jesus came to life again, this changes everything we should understand about the world. It changes the world, what we should believe about life and death, people and matter. This changes what we should believe about spiritual and physical makeup of things. And it absolutely changes what we should think about the claims of Christianity and the teaching of Jesus, about being a Messiah and dying for our sins. And if this is true, it simply does not matter whether you like or dislike Christians or not. This then is the thing you should focus your thoughts on your attentions on, your efforts on to prove or disprove Christianity as being valid. Because this is the good thought foundation. You need to do what the journalist Lee Strobel did when he became a Christian, or when his wife became a Christian, sorry. He writes this, even as an atheist, I understood one thing about Christianity. It rises and falls on the resurrection of Jesus. After all, anyone can claim to be divine, as Jesus did, directly and indirectly, 
Yet Jesus predicted he would die and rise again three days later and then did it. That would be pretty good evidence he was telling the truth about his identity. In other words, Easter is the ball game. As a law-trained journalist at the Chicago Tribune, I also knew something else. Dead bodies stay dead. I'd seen lots of corpses during my career as a reporter, and none of them ever regained life, especially after three days. So I figured it would be easy to disprove the resurrection and thus liberate my wife from her newfound faith in Christ. Give me a weekend, I told her, and I can shred Christianity's central claim. Well, it wasn't that easy. When finally I reached my verdict, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus was clear and convincing. That's why I repented of my sins and received him as my forgiver and leader on November the 8th, 1981. Ultimately, I would see my morality, my worldview, my marriage, and even my career transformed as a result of this. Listen, just to close, we're definitely going to touch as we go through these four objections on this stronger foundation more and more. And I'd love to invite you to the next three preachers to hear more about that. But even if you're not going to make those things, can I invite you to buy Lee Strobel's book? If you're really serious about looking at the worth of Christianity, whether it holds up or doesn't hold up, start this by looking at the resurrection like he did and building your opinions on a solid foundation.